we're sort of reinventing CI and CD. Like every commit should be deployed and available forever. But once you start to do that, you break a couple of these constraints that we had previously, like where you had very linear CI CD pipelines. The thing that drew me in was the fact that you could just log everything. Because the dashboard is great, but it will never tell you the past. Hi, I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Shelby Spees. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OlliCast, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OlliCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OlliCast. So, Erwin, I met you when I visited Australia for the first time, and you took me around and introduced me to, I think, every engineer in Australia. I think all of you know each other. You were, <laughs> went to the same school. You go drinking together. It was it was amazing. I was exhausted, but you were amazing. So I had so much fun. I, I was so impressed with just Australians. You know, I, I, I spent a lot of time in Europe, and compared to the European visits that I've made, Australians just seem very open to things that are new. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's sort of this really interesting sort of thing where I think if you sort of go back to sort of early 2000s, is like there, there are a lot of pretty big sort of mature scale-ups sort of around. Like you got the you got the real estate site, you got the secondhand car sales site, you got the job board. REIT, yeah, in, in Australia. Some biggish companies. And they're really big now. Like they, they extend sort of internationally. Mm. Of course, there's sort of Atlassian, which sort of a sort of big, massive story. Mm. Yeah, but big does not necessarily usually correlate with appetite for risk and novelty. I think that was what was interesting to me. Yeah, they're big, but they're not massive hmm. right so and i think that's sort of this sort of really interesting phenomena and then and sort of but also there's a lot of here i thought you were going to be like well it comes from our roots as cowboys in the wild wild west <laughs> i don't know i'm dutch I, I i got here 10 years ago <laughs> well this feels like a great time for you to introduce yourself so yeah i'm i'm Erwin, originally dutch currently living in australia running a startup around bringing front-end applications to uh, to production that's the worst thing in the world to do. As your friend, I counsel you, never start a company. It's funny. I do this a lot with aspiring founders. And they go like, oh, you're a founder. I want to I wanna start a startup. And I go like, don't be dumb. Just don't. Yeah, the cult of the founder is something that make, I just grind my teeth. And I hated it before. And I hate it even it's, more now. Yeah, you're dumb. <laughs> like, go join someone else's startup that's somewhat successful. You're done well, Shelby. Like, you, you join it right I, uh, I remember um, when I was interviewing for a job, I was uh, my, my previous job, I was explaining how like I'm not an ideas person. Like I don't have some, some big, you know, idea that I want to like go out and, and pose on the world. Like, like show me what you're working on and I will find 50 ways to make it better. Like I am a nitpicker. I'm, I'm a critic. Like I'm a Virgo. Like I will sit down and just pick on every little thing and make it better. I will take your shitty idea and I will make it great. <laughs> yeah, you you've done exactly the right thing. Like like Joan Hunt, like join someone else's startup that's been somewhat successful uh, yeah. and make it better. It's Let them suffer and, and make it better. So much better. Yeah, yeah, being a founder is just dumb, right? It's like there's it's an incredible <laughs> amount of stress, incredible amount of work, and the expected payoff is zero. 
you can never put it down and like it's like having a kid or something like you don't stop the, the job doesn't go away no I, I have a kid and like the startup is worse <laughs> Startup is way worse. Like the kids occasionally hug you before they go to bed. The kids uh, occasionally <laughs> hug you. That's that's a very good point. <laughs> well, what brought you to observability? Because you were very early to like zero in on it and go, yes, I want this. Well, yeah, I, it was funny because like you did a serverless talk like in some conference, and that's sort of how I found out about you. And then said, so like, what's this honeycomb that she's working on? And then like, as soon as I saw like the homepage of Honeycomb, I'm going, surely this can't be true. I feel like you were one of like the five, back when I was in charge of marketing and I was like, high cardinality is going to be the term that's going to bring all the, my milkshake of like high cardinality is going to bring all the engineers <laughs> to the yard. You know? And it took me like six months of Christine just going, Charity, nobody knows what this is. Nobody knows what this is. And I'm like, I will tell them what it is. And there are like five people in the world who are like, yes, we are all in. And it was like you and Intercom and like, you know, and it was just so funny because you all were like, yes, say no more. Sold. Clearly this is the next big thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was exactly that. But I think it was the high cardinality stuff that you, you, you were able to like map that to what you were doing and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, obviously, because it's so obvious once you've seen it, you're like, obviously, these are the questions I would want to ask. Obviously. So what are those questions? Like, what, what were you working on that just made it click so, so fast? Yeah, so the fun thing is, and I think it's like sort of interesting for later as well. I was running a startup at the time. Like, I had no traffic. I had no sort of nothing. And so I wasn't actually that it was a solution for, for a problem I had at the time. Production wasn't even an issue. Yeah, like, like production was down. I'm like, eh, whatever. whatever. <laughs> That's what the stage we're at at the time. But yeah, like having worked on like these sort of big, massive sort of systems where like you get a, like a bug report and you just go, eh, I don't know. For you, I feel like it was, I remember seeing these JavaScript things where you were just like, Honeycomb was how I was able to find that, you know, this one user on this one endpoint with this one API key with this what, you know, it's just like this long series of very specific things that you just want to chain together like a little pearl necklace and the composability because it's always obvious after that. You're like, and this is where people are just like, cool, so I'll just generate a dashboard for this question, you know, and show this forever, yeah, right? But, um, but even then, like it was the high cardinality, but for me, the thing that drew me in was the fact that, like, as soon as you log, like, just log everything, right? And then, like, it's, it says, yeah. like, log, log things, like, once. Because the thing is, like, the, the problem with the dashboard is it's, it's great, but it will never tell you the past, right? You'll never, you can never go back. Yeah. You're always fighting the last battle. You're always looking at the dashboards for the last outages. Yeah, or or specific log things, and and like, so what you have to do, and that's sort of like like how I love debugging the, the gnarly debugging, was always figure out where things could go wrong, then put in the logs, like yeah. then run it in production for a while. Yeah, predict where your where your shit's gonna break. Yeah, and then go like 
instrument it really well so you can see it. Because you have to be very skimpy with it, with the traditional like logging and metric stuff. Like you're constantly balancing how much can I pay for? What's my right amplification going to look like? How much am I already logging? Have I already logged this in some other place? Because if you log it in one place, you'll get to see it in that place. It doesn't persist with the entire context. It's all of that. Yeah. Because then, like, I was, uh, like, I spent a lot of time in banks. So, like, money wasn't even like the issue. It wasn't even sort of like pay for it. Yeah. But it was the, yeah, you're now looking at logs. And, and sort of then you'd have to, but you had a couple of million users at the same time. So now you've got to figure out, like, this log line here, is that the same request? So now we Being able to break down by, like, if you have two million users, being able to break down by that user is what, like, I, I feel like you can describe high cardinality all day long. And until someone has experienced the power of, oh, so I'm literally just generating any possible one of my dashboards for this user on the fly whenever I want in it. In the past. In the past, <laughs> yeah. 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 Just over time, you can just look at the entire like window of everything you care about. And that's so key, and it's so core, and it's so hard to explain to people just how revolutionary it is to everything about understanding your systems. Yeah, it's so funny because I, like, I remember even just, Charity, when I started following you and, and learning from you, and just high carnality meant nothing to me. <laughs> but hearing about stories or hearing examples and, and being able to connect that to like what my team was struggling with at the time, where it's like, okay, we have issues with this one customer, with this one placement, with this one you know platform, and and our engineers were just going in and adding stats D metrics for that. And they didn't even have like feature flags. So they would have to deploy for every time they want to ask questions about that. And then the error wouldn't ever come back, right? The issue would never surface because it was like some emergent failure mode, right? And so it's just like, I remember... The good old, the good old Heisen bug. Yeah. Heisen bugs. <laughs> bugs are good. Yeah. It wasn't until I made that connection. It's like, oh, wait, like, of course you should be able to, like, query for this one user, this one customer or whatever. And then just, like, seeing what those events looked like. Yeah. Where I was just like, oh, okay, this is just, like, object-oriented logging, right? It's just yeah. not even that crazy. I like that object-oriented logging. Mm -hmm. It's just the – it's so simple that it's hard to explain to people how revolutionary it is because – it seems so obvious, you know, and this is where I feel like what we're seeing is that the effects of tooling and tools just took a very specific path, right? Like StatsD was built on top of the the metric that, you know, was MRTG and like SNMPD and simple network, mon <laughs> simple network. I want to like throw things every time <laughs> I hear that. Still got like this knee jerk. Like, ah! But like it was built on those data stores, right? And so it inherited all of the qualities of those very primitive systems that were limited in these really intense ways, like down to the very nature of the data structure that it was underpinning. And because it was built on that the trunk of that tree, it's like we just like never saw outside of our own courtyard. Mm-hmm. Makes you wonder how many more things like that are out there in tech right now. Yeah, where, where are our blind spots, right? Like, what don't we realize we're, we're doing? Yeah, definitely. What could we be doing radically better if we hadn't been just so hemmed in by our assumptions from the past? Mm -hmm. What did you start up to, Erwin? Tell us about it. So we um, we take sort of front-end development, sort of like a React, Angular, view, like things that run on the browser, talk with APIs, and we're sort of reinventing sort of CI and CD, and it's really interesting because we have the, sort of the same thing where like every commit should be deployed and available forever, right? But like once you start to do that, 
I'm like, you break a couple of these constraints that we had previously, like where you had very linear CI/CD pipelines. Like first you build, and after the builds you run your test, your unit tests, and after the unit tests you run your sort of acceptance tests, and then you deploy to Thayer, and then you run this other tests. But now because we deploy every commit, I'm like, even we sort of go like, why would I do the unit test first and then the acceptance test, yeah. and then deploy because like we can deploy straight away. Like we can run the unit test and the acceptance test at the same time. And then we're going like, oh, but wait a minute, we're doing JavaScript. So like compiling is bundling, not actually compiling. So we can like run the build and the unit test at the same time. Like the entire area of release engineering has been such a underappreciated, underinvested in area for as long as I've been in tech. Totally. Which means that there are so many like huge, like amazing leaps you could do with very little effort in most places. It can be very rewarding. <laughs> yeah, and that's sort of like one of one of our sort of challenges is that we sort of go like, no, like because like I know setting up pipelines is is a, is a bitch, but like yeah. like ours is like literally fifteen minutes, like five if yeah. if it's sort of somewhat standard, and and like there's all these mental models that you have around these things. That yeah. are so hard to break. They they really really are. And I, 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 the fun thing was that like, like even we have to break through our own mental models, and we write the damn thing. <laughs> so like this goes back to something like we've been talking thinking about recently a lot, which is the fact that you know these are very complex socio technical systems that you can't really design or plan so much as they emerge and evolve, which is both the frustrating part and the the strange joy of you know any sort of not even management role, but any sort of like, you know, crossing the event horizon to being a senior engineer just basically means you are now equipped to reason about the system instead of your own tiny little component, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and so, like, I think it's sobering to realize just how much of your ability to ship code quickly, sanely, is not actually under your control at all. <laughs> doesn't come from the algorithms or data structures in your head. Doesn't come from your experience. It comes from the system surrounding you. And the system, uh, you know, like you basically rise or fall to the level of the system that you join within a couple of months. You know, I've seen like amazingly effective engineers at one company go and join a company that was, you know, did not shipping very quickly and and they you know they stroll in with the arrogance of a thousand suns but it doesn't last very long because like they're blocked everybody's blocked from the same goddamn logs in the river yep. you know um, and and conversely like this isn't just a depressing tale either like conversely i think a lot of people have an unfairly low opinion of themselves as engineers just because high performing teams are so incredibly rare mm. that most people have never had the opportunity to work on one and so they don't know that they're just as good <laughs> as all those other engineers over there who they look up to yeah. they just haven't gotten to work on the same teams you know and so like this is why, like, I, I literally, I, I have stickers that I've made that say, quit your job with a bunch of rainbows. Because I feel like <laughs> people should have such higher expectations for themselves. And they should, they should crave this experience, right? Especially fresh out of college. Like, what you should you be looking for? I don't give a shit about the product, the industry, the is How good is the team? How good is their system that you're going to get plopped into? Because that is where you're going to learn 
like all of your expectations, all of your, you know, your initial set of like understandings about what it means to work and build in one of these systems. And you should want to get on the best system that you can. Totally. And especially those first couple of years when, when you've never lived in production before, you don't even know what production was. I remember the first time I like learned like what CI was, you know, <laughs> like, like, oh, okay. The more you can learn good stuff, the less bad habits you'll have to unlearn before you can learn better ones. Yeah. I, re- I mean, my first job, I remember having to fight that, like, we should have a test suite, right? I was like, we should have a test suite, should have automated tests. And they're like, well, no, we're on a deadline, like, you know, we, you know, we have, and of course, of course, you know, the deadline, we passed the deadline and, and they were still working on it like years later. I've heard this story so many times. Yeah. So. You know, if there's one thing that Jez and Nicole's book, Accelerate, has taught us all, it should end these arguments. It's that the way to be reliable is to move fast, right? Mm-hmm. And pick up your speed and your reliability will improve. Like, it's like riding a bicycle. If you slow it, and it, and it goes so contrary to our instincts. When, we, when we're feeling out of control, we want to slow down, we seize up, and we're just like, ah, nobody move. But like, we have to train that out of ourselves because it's so, so counterproductive. I, I had a colleague who did an internal presentation like 15 years ago, maybe. I could, at least at least 10, 10 years ago. And she did this like, incredible presentation, like internally. And like, this was a five-minute set of presentation. And like she starts out by talking about race cars. And she talks about race cars, like and innovations in racing for five minutes straight. And and we're all sort of going like this is like really, and then there's like sort of like all of us in the audience, like a 70, 60, 70 people in the audience. And we're all sort of going like, this is really interesting, but like, why? Is, is she even at the right event? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, look, look, uh, we, she, she was a colleague. We knew that she was yeah, very good okay. at what she did, but it was, mm-hmm. like, why? And then like, like the last thing, like in the last sort of seven seconds, she goes, and just in case you haven't noticed, like all of these innovations were safety innovations. Hmm. And it's that safety that allowed us to go faster. Now, I've been to like a couple hundred talks since, and I, I still vividly remember that one because that's when it hit home for me. It's like, if you can make things safe, like safety allows you to go faster because you know that like the brakes work. I'm like jumping up and down over here. Like, I love that sentence because that's exactly how it works, right? We put guardrails on ourselves. We shrink our build time so that we get smaller feedback loops and just all of this stuff. That's such a beautiful thing because it rings true for like every example I can think of for like developer tooling and and process improvements and all of that stuff. I'm like thrilled right now. I'm like so stoked. <laughs> and that's, but that's, that's sort of what that sort of counterintuitive is, right? Like that you have to invest in this sort of safety and these tests and the builds and sort of all of that. And for me, Honeycomb is in like in that same space, right? Observability is in that same space. You can see where you're putting your feet. It's like going out to hike up an, up a mountain in the, the dead of night and like not bringing a flashlight, you yeah. know, you're going to go faster if you have a little headlamp yeah, on yeah, exactly. illuminating where you're about to put your feet. And that's, and that's for, for me, it's like, yeah, we, we put something in production and I'm pretty darn sure that it's good, but, but yeah. like, and this is sort of like this, this whole like workflow that we may or may not even be talked like enough about is this like post-production phase. Like after I put something alive, mm. I just go click around the honeycomb for a while, right? Just to see whether the change that I have made yep. is actually working as I intended it. And, and this is something where 
like, as I'm sure you're aware, there are a lot of companies out there who are selling their quote unquote observability tools (laughs) that do not provide the kind of observability that will let you do this. You know, like this is what, one of the things, you know, I have many posts out there on the internet talking about our definition of observability, which is, you know, about unknown, unknown, you know, blah, blah, blah. You've heard this many times, but like, specifically you cannot do that if you don't have the ability if you don't support arbitrarily wide structured data blobs mm. uh, and if you don't allow people to break down by high cardinality dimension build id high cardinality dimension right infinitely incrementing um high cardinality dimension uh you need to be able to string together as many of these so it has to be high dimension like i'm not just making this shit up because honeycomb has these and so therefore everyone must have them it's like no you can't actually do the things we're talking about if all you have is the time series aggregates and the metrics tool you can't do those things and you have to be able to to like basically point at any you know point at the spike and go what's different about it <laughs> what is different about these requests than all those other requests and it's not going to be one thing it's usually going to be three or four or five or six or seven things right how what chance do you have of guessing those like pretty low it was it was hilarious i vividly remember doing a demo for a friend of mine in uh, over in perth so i was just sort of clicking around in my own like links data set to sort of show them. And like because we host other people's like I didn't learn from your mistake, uh, charity, um, from parse. Um, <laughs> platform problem. We host other people's JavaScript. Terrible mistake. To our listeners, never do it. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit too late for that now. But um, <laughs> but yeah, like but but it means that things like performance don't necessarily make any sort of sense. Cause I I can look at a like an aggregate because that data could be something that they did something that you did, some intersection of the two, or something that any one of the other customers sharing any pool of services that is, or any database, like, it's just meaningless. Yeah, so I was doing this demo for them, and and, and there's this sort of big massive spike in latency. So yeah, I I go to the heat map, and then just sort of do the bubble up for that spike. Like, it's the images for this particular customer. Like, oh no, it was only the GIFs of this one particular customer. And you just go, why? Why is that the case? Like, and then, like, you got this sort of threat. Like, and now you can sort of go down and go, like, why is why are only the gives? Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Or it's like, oh, it's just this customer, and it's just this customer's exports, and it's just because they're all like so much bigger than all the others, and you know, like, just out of glance, you can tell this outlier is special in all of these ways, and it's just the years of my life worth of hours spent debugging that this one thing alone would have saved me is just, it's it's almost hurts to think about. Yeah, I had this really interesting sort of bug a couple of weeks ago where, yeah, one of our customers uh, sort of pinged me and he goes, it's really weird. Everything was fine for him, but when he sent one of these preview links for one of those commits to like one of, someone else in the organization, it didn't work for them. Like, and the guy happened to be like the CEO of that customer, so it didn't work for for the CEO. I worked for the dev, not for the CEO. And and so you say it works on my machine, and you go home. It for works the on day. my machine, and, and so that's so what you do. Um, <laughs> but then I checked out the link, and it didn't work for me either. And then I gave it to my co-founder, and it worked for him. <gasps> and I sort of go. What the what what? You start tearing your hair out. But, and this is one of the things that like, I, I vividly remember, like you talking 
about a lot sort of uh, when I was dragging you around Australia. And like, it's this sort of, like, like error percentages don't mean anything. Like you, you have this sort of... Percentages cover over so many sins. Just like, they just erase all detail. There's a big difference between like one in a thousand requests going wrong for everyone, which is like, fine, whatever, just refresh. But it's very different if it's 100% of one customer. Yeah. Or everyone whose last name starts with this. Or everyone who is, you know, in this region, running this thing at this time. You know, just like the possibilities are infinite. And they are getting harder and harder to track them down. Yeah, so when I finally sort of figured out sort of what was going on, like it turns out a cookie wasn't set that should have been set. And if you had the cookie on your machine already, then it worked because the cookie was there. Yeah. But then like the next question became like, why is the cookie not set? I compare it to like following a trail of breadcrumbs. Like, and debugging isn't hard when you're just putting one foot in front of the other and you can't see where you're going. You don't have no idea where you're going to, but you can always see where to put your foot based on the answer you just got. And this is so qualitatively and in every way different from the way we used to quote unquote debug, which was throwing out random ass guesses that we tried to match to the dashboards on our wall and going, would this scenario support this set of errors? I call it armchair engineering. Right. Armchair engineering. I love it. And then you go look for evidence that your guess was correct, which is another problem because if you're just looking for evidence that your guess is correct, it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It is exhausting. It is stressful. It is hard to debug that way. And you're always going to be like, the person who's been there the longest is always going to be the best at it. And it gets depressing and demoralizing, but like, it's not scientific. It's not debugging. You're not actually following the data. Yeah. But here's the thing I, I realized sort of like after that thing, because I, and this, this goes back to my sort of thing earlier, like having that sort of historical data, like once I'd figured out what the problem was, like I could figure out that yes, like these other like two customers were affected as well by the same bug. But more importantly is I had full confidence, like after fixing that bug, yeah. that I had fixed all the instances of this bug. Because right? mm-hmm. I, could, I could go yeah. and like, well, it wasn't just like this one thing here. Like this fix that I have now shipped would fix all of the causes of this bug. This confidence that you're describing, this confidence and this like, it's not the same as cockiness, oh, right? No. It's confidence that comes from, you know, And this is what is so hard to describe to people who have never worked in a system that was well understood or that was even capable of being understood by people, you know? And these are the people who are always on Twitter, like freaking the fuck out over Friday deploys. Mm -hmm. They're just like, what the fuck are you thinking doing that on a Friday? It's like they're, they're accusing you of like, shipping bombs you know it's just like that is the level of trust and confidence that they have not just in their changes but in their ability to even know or understand the ramifications or the likely danger of, of what they're doing or whether they've fixed something or not when they think they have they're just like waiting for monitoring checks to go green and then it's like phew they have no confidence that anything is fixed they're just like they've gotten it to be quiet so they can go to bed yeah. you know yeah this goes, it goes back to that sort of like piece of workflow that that we may not be talking about enough is that sort of post deploy step of like 
verification of, mm-hmm. of... And you know why they don't look at it? Because almost nobody has actually automated everything that happens between when you merge your branch and when it's 100% live and you can look at it. Almost nobody has automated all of that, which means that it is God knows how long. It's like it could be half an hour. It could be three days. You can't like make muscle memory out of that. You can't hold people accountable for looking at that. Yeah. You know, and as soon as you've like inserted human gates, and they probably are even batching up multiple merges for per deploy, which let, let us not even speak of such horrors. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, I was lucky to be, you know, on on the DevOps team and and like having like the kind of access where, you know, we would batch up our chef deploys and or like put wait until Monday or or sort of thing or wait until next week. And then when we finally deployed to Pride, it was my job to go in and SSH into the server and tail the chef <laughs> logs and you know like watch the process is and you know all of that stuff and I'm glad for the experience because I, now I can like talk about that stuff but at the same time like we don't <laughs> tell your kids no we shouldn't those are valuable hours of your life <laughs> right, yeah or like oh my gosh Terraform changes when you know we manually like scale up and scale back down in order to rotate our AMIs um, and things like that and it's just it's not a good use of our time and no. and so it's just like and the same thing for for deploying code right like if you don't don't know how to validate that your code is behaving as expected in production. Yeah. It's a feedback loop you don't get, yeah. and and you can't learn. And it and it and it actually like stagnates people's yeah. like we have like an entire generation of engineers who could be so productive that that like their tooling and their their socio technical systems are holding them back, and it's a shame. I made this slide for exactly this. It was showing like picture of two people like. One person, they, they joined, they left college at the same time, imagine two people, they leave college at the same time, same courses and everything. One of them joins a team that, you know, where anytime someone merges, they automatically get shipped, which means they ship, say, 12 to 15 times a day on average without really thinking about it, right? And the other joins a team with equally good engineers, just as much money and everything, that ships twice a month. Mm-hmm. Like, fast forward two years, which of those engineers is going to be, like, superpowered? Like, it's not even funny. Yeah. And it, and it's the thing that pisses me off about, like, the leak code and the whiteboard interviews and, like, all get, of that. Don't stuff. get me started yeah. on those. Right? Yes. Because it's, it's like, there's such bad signals for what makes a good engineer, what makes a good team. Yeah. You know? And so it's, it's like, we're, we have this, like, false advertising around, you know, what kind of team do you want to join or what kind of engineer do you want to hire? Yeah. And, and, the, and the other thing that I love about the term, like, socio-technical or, and, and stuff is, like, it's a new instance of the system as soon as you add or remove a person, right? It's no longer the same mm-hmm. team that it was. I, I talk about that a lot. You know, before personnel changes yeah. or, or tooling changes, right? And, and, and so, yeah. um, so not only is it like constantly evolving, but it's not a single entity. Yeah. Or it's never the same team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's such a shame because I've been really fortunate to learn from really amazing people. And I've been re- already learning so much from just like my short time at Honeycomb so far. And I'm thinking about like, gosh, if I could have done this stuff my first couple of years, like, mm. you know, or, or how, how much better would we be at solving the problems that we're setting out to solve as an industry if we weren't held back by our tools and our process and, and our practices? Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of like, I'm also like really optimistic about the future in, in sort of this regard um, from the, the technical side of things, not so much on some of the other <laughs> dimensions of the future. But yeah, like if, if you look at, at sort of that 
we're now very much in this sort of contraction of like the undoing of the fragmentation sort of right. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of a large part of that was sort of driven by by things like just Docker, right? The containers and Docker, and where before like everything had to be bespoke because like we had a Java application and it needed this and it needed this other thing and 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 that, so yeah, like there's this sort of massive massive sort of reduction in like fragmentation going on sort of right now mm-hmm. that. We can start to build out this tooling around hosting, around like getting stuff into production, and then there's these like a couple of companies that I that are doing some like really cool stuff around this space as well, like um, sort of Honeycomb when it comes to observability, sort of launched Darkly when we were talking about sort of feature flagging, the stuff that we were trying to do is sort of the front end sort of things. So there's actually like a lot of, and I'm sure there's sort of many more of these companies that because this sort of contractions happening in the like that frag- of that fragmentation, like I think it will it will get sort of so much better over the next couple of years, where it becoming it's becoming easier and easier to build these systems that do this from the outset, which which actually sort of brings me to the point one of the points around sort of observability that I that I make a lot is like start with this right like. People have this feeling that, like, well, we don't need observability now because, like, we're a startup and we're, we're like a real company. Yeah, until we get to be this big or this complicated. Yeah, no, but like, no, it's never not easier. Yeah, one, of the, one of the things that's really powerful, like, because we've done it like almost from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly not, it's not in everything that we do. But we are now in a position where, like, quite literally, like, every alert, Goes into a Slack channel mm. with the three of us. Sort of look, like, and, and we got notifications on, right? So, but the thing is, like, it's really hard to dig yourself out of a pit yeah. when your team has gotten into a pit when you're mm. losing ground. It is really hard and painful, and you usually sacrifice all forward momentum as a business while you sort your shit out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you can avoid that, if you just avoid sinking into that hole, oh my God, are you going to bless your? Past self. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I loved Jessica Kerr's story about just like starting to send from Dev. You know, such a such a crush on Jessica. She's <laughs> so don't, good. Don't we all? <laughs> oh, she's amazing. She's so cool. And that's been my thing. It's just like if you can send from Dev, you can send from Prod. Getting people comfortable with just like instrumenting code and thinking about w- how that code's going to behave in production before they even start writing it. And that's you know that's charities awesome post on observability driven development that's the definition you know and if you're starting like a new greenfield project or something where you don't know when you're gonna ship you don't know when you're gonna you know have general availability yet you can still gain so much about starting with observability and building an observable system from the ground up and like i've learned just like oh okay that's you know how rails thinks about that or whatever just like really basic stuff that it's so much quicker yeah just being able to see what you're doing just learn little random things along the way about how what's happening under the hood is what helps to build up that rich, vibrant, intricate, real, like mm-hmm. mental representation that, that you have. Or mm-hmm. most of us believe the craziest shit about our systems. Like taking it out of our heads and putting it in the source of truth that we all have access to is is like each of us, like we're working on these distributed systems, right? And we're responsible for a very small little corner of, of the world. And we know that our corner 
intimately while we're working on it, you know, and the way that you interact with that, that corner mm-hmm. while you're working on it, that is how an expert interacts with it. An expert who knows what's meaningful, knows what's important, knows what tends to break, what tends to look for. And just like, this is why we've always put history in the honeycomb, right? Because you're working on your corner, but you're responsible for the whole thing, right? You're on call for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to like hop around and look at other people's corners of the world and just having access to their history, like seeing the grooves that they wore in the system while they were interacting with it is mm-hmm. incalculably priceless. I would love to just keep talking all day about this. Yeah. Uh, we we, could, go on we could keep ranting all night, couldn't we? But this has been so wonderful. Thank you so Thank much, Erin. No worries. It was always good fun chatting with the two of you. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.